0: Amen. Let's come to our Sovereign Lord now in faith as we approach his word. We're in Romans chapter 9. And if you know your Bibles, I said earlier, didn't I, if you know Jeremiah, you'll know Jeremiah 31 is a great chapter. If you know Romans, you know Romans 9 is a fearsome chapter. Uh, What's Pastor Ben going to make of it? Well, let's find out uh, today as we begin With Romans 9. I've entitled uh, the sermon this morning, God's Sovereignty in Salvation, Part 1. Children of the Promise. Okay, We're looking at what Paul says about who are the children of the promise. If you're one of his here today, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're seeking to order your life according to his will, then you're a a child of the promise. All right? Let's explore together. Children, what do we make of them? What do we make of children? Uh, You don't have to be a parent to have a view about children. I mean, we love them, don't we? Our children? I mean, Friends Baptist Church loves children, right? Yes, Pastor Ben, we love children that's why we bring our children to church to teach them the pattern of worship to teach them the word of God and to pray for their salvation we want the best for our children and that starts with knowing and being reconciled to God everything else is secondary what what career our children might aspire to how wealthy and comfortable they might become, how well they might marry, and how many children of their own they might have one day. All of those things, secondary friends. As good and healthy as these things can be, they are all surely worthless and doomed to failure if the first priority, our standing before Holy God, Is not far and above our greatest concern. So, is it our greatest concern, friends? What else are we doing? And I'm preaching as much to myself as I am to you today. What else are we doing to promote and expand the knowledge of God in our homes and in our children's lives? You're doing something right in bringing your children to church. Yes. Praise God. But what else are we doing to help them to know Jesus? Because, friends, surely it has to start with our own knowledge of and love of God. We cannot expect our children to truly know God and to taste of His unparalleled goodness if we continually teach our children that other things are better and more desirable. It's all too easy in this world of plenty to give at best very mixed messages. We all too easily end up just paying lip service to God, becoming Sunday Christians and looking indistinguishable from unbelievers every other day of the week. You might be thinking that I'm going off on a rant about our child raising. But actually, friends, it's the Apostle Paul who brings up the subject of children in the beginning of chapter 9 of Romans. You see, for Paul, which kind of children we are, children of the promise or children of merely fleshly heritage, is vitally important. We can have all the blessings and the advantages our upbringing affords us. But if we are not named through Isaac in the line of the promise, we are lost. You see, through Isaac eventually came who? Jesus. And who was Jesus? God over all, says Paul in Romans 9, and the saviour of all his people. Friends, if we have not been adopted as one of his children, according to God's purpose of election, we remain hated by God, cut off from Christ, as verse 3 says, and subject to his righteous wrath. Why? Because of our willful sin and rebellion. Our failure to worship God. And our preference to worship all manner of other things instead. So friends, if we truly love our children, if we truly love ourselves, let us fling ourselves on God's mercy. Because his mercy, his grace is abundant in Christ. Let us do it immediately and let us do it fervently. We're going to read from Romans 9 and we'll read verses 1 through 13. I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Do we have the same, friends? Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts for the lost. Friends, our children may be lost if they don't know Christ. For I wish... I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers those of my own race the people of Israel theirs is the adoption of sons theirs the divine glory the covenants the receiving of the law the temple worship and the promises theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised amen it is not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children on the contrary it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned in other words it is not the natural children who are God's children but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. That word's taken, of course, from Genesis chapter 18. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Just tag that extra verse on the in there to reassure you. Okay. If you're taking notes this morning, I've got three F's, okay? Three F's. Fervor, failure, and faithfulness. Fervor, failure, and faithfulness. Firstly, fervor. Friend, what is it you're burdened by this morning? What are you burdened by? Worldly concerns? These are very real concerns, of course. Though we often blow them out of proportion, don't we? With our worry. The the worldly concerns, they mount. Especially in the dark hours of the night. We find ourselves restless, worrying over nothing. The media and the constant pressure from the world feeds our fears It urges us to pursue worldly comforts and security, doesn't it? What about Paul? Paul had good reasons to be worried about worldly things. He suffered immense opposition, he suffered rejection and persecution. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was chased out of town. Eventually, he would be executed by a Roman sword just outside the city of Rome. But Paul counted himself nothing for the cause of Christ. Nonetheless, (coughs) provision for the impoverished church in Judea was a very real need. It's not like worldly concerns are just to be ignored, totally. Sometimes we have to help our brothers and sisters Sometimes provision needs to be made. Sometimes we need to sacrifice. (coughs) The church in Judea was a very real need. And it was a priority to Paul and the other churches to make provision. It was a worthy cause, certainly. But the main concern of Paul here in our text today is for the salvation of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Those to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. What a wonderful set of credentials for a people group. But what does this all count for? Are are they really adopted by God? Are they as privileged as they think? Not unless they have the vital last link in the chain. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 5. If you're in any doubt, friend, over whether the Bible teaches the divinity of Christ, look no further than Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Christ is God over all. He's not the brother of Michael or Lucifer. He's not the first of all created things or beings. He is God himself in the flesh. And that is why he is first. Christ the one who died and was raised as Paul said in chapter 8 verse 34 the one who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for his people the one who helps us overcome all manner of trials and tribulations who preserves us and makes us more than conquerors as Paul has said at the end of chapter 8 that's why that chapter is so glorious because it's focused on Christ and his Holy Spirit who makes him known. Christ transforms us and makes us ever more glorifying of him. And he is the one from whom nothing in all creation can be separated (laughs) if we have truly been united with him. Earlier on in Romans chapters 2 and 3 Paul has spent a lengthy amount of time showing how all of Israel's glorious privileges are worthless if the people continue to indulge in worldliness like the pagans. They continue to love the world more than they acknowledge God. And so their religion is all too often empty and useless. In fact, many Christians, those who Uh, even those of a Jewish background, they rejected and spurned the Jews and their heritage because the Jewish authorities had rejected and crucified Christ. Some today still harbour animosity towards Jews for this reason. We cannot accept that, friends. Human beings of every race, nation, tribe and tongue are created in the image of God. I have innate Value and worth. They're to be reached with the gospel of grace in love and mercy. But all of that is missing the point. Because Paul has clearly explained how we are all in danger of judgment. In fact, in our natural state, we are objects of wrath. Our days of delusion are numbered until Christ, in his great and glorious mercy, tenderly stoops down and rescues us from our rebellion. So what is it you're fervent about? Paul was fervent for the spread of the gospel, especially to his Jewish brethren. What is it you're fervent about? Are you, like Paul, concerned to save the unbelievers from your own background and culture? What about your friends, your co-workers and your neighbours? Can they all just go to hell? What about your children? Are you fervent for their salvation? Because if not, we face failure, friends. My second point, because of the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish establishment and consequently most of the Jewish people, the Old Testament promises were in danger of being accused of failing. At least that is the charge that Paul responds to here in the text. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because what did God actually say? If we presuppose, if we assume that a religious message is only effective insofar as it delivers salvation for all those professing to follow that religion has that message failed if all are not saved? Well, no. No. Because God's revelation never promises salvation for all those connected to Abraham by mere flesh, simply through a line of natural descent. God's word does not promise that. Our parents and our families do not guarantee us a right standing before God. Contrary to so many religious groups we are not born naturally into a right relationship with God. In fact, every single religious group has a rite of passage to be numbered in its ranks. Even if those rituals are conducted within a few days or even moments of birth, nobody is actually born conforming to a certain faith. And most certain of all, we are not born Christians Baptism at a young age does not make you a Christian, friend. Coming to believe and put our trust in Christ is something that only God can do. Why does he save some? Not because of their inherent value and worth, but he saves them for God's own eternal glory and purpose. Look at verse 11 in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I'm going to explore this and unpack this more in detail next time as Paul continues to explain God's purposes in calling sinners to repentance and faith. But most definitely, friends, it is not according to human will or exertion, as he will say in verse 16. But salvation, our salvation, and our children's salvation depends entirely on our merciful and gracious God and his plan for his own glory in our day and age. Every other effort to make our own paths straight, to atone for our own sin, to build a successful life, will all ultimately fail because God alone is sovereign this creation and each of us has been made our core purpose is to worship God with all our body, mind and soul and as long as this life continues our purpose must be if we are born again followers of Jesus and what did Jesus say? He said, you must be born again. There's no options. You know, being a born-again Christian is like extra credit. No, you must be born again. Then our purpose must be to fervently pursue spiritual reformation. And the gospel mission to reach the lost. Because we were once numbered amongst them. You were once numbered amongst the lost. There was a day when you did not know the grace of God. But now you do. And the grace of God is amazing. So amazing. It convicts us and it makes us his fervent servants. Vain human attempts to build our own temples and towers to heaven. To self-redeem. These are all doomed to failure. But God is faithful and he will help those, those who, like Paul, have surrendered to the cry of God within our hearts. Failure, though guaranteed, humanly speaking, ought to be a catalyst for pursuing God with renewed fervour and perseverance. Because God will never let us down. God is faithful and his will will be accomplished. My final point this morning, faithfulness. Friends, the Christian faith, the faith in Christ which truly saves, is all about redemption and transformation. Redemption and transformation. Redemption, first of all, a price is necessary as we heard midweek in our study in Exodus chapter 30, that's right, Exodus 30 tells us that a price must be paid, a redemption price. A price is necessary to redeem us from the kingdom of darkness and to put us into the kingdom of Christ's eternal life, as the Apostle John teaches. Come along to hear more this evening, 6.30, 1 John chapter 1. You see, friends, Jesus alone has paid the price and made the impossible possible. Christ alone. And the effect of that redemption in Christ's blood is inevitable transformation. It's not maybe God will transform you. He will transform you from one shade of glory into another. Oh, sure enough, we'll look different we'll have different talents, we'll have different giftings, but we'll all share in this wonderful transformation that the Spirit of God brings. The transformation of Paul who wrote this letter from being a zealous persecutor of the church, hell-bent on bringing this Jesus cult to an end, to become one, becoming one of the Lord's most ardently patient and tenacious gospel witnesses. Can you see more of a difference than that? An ardent uh, persecutor of the church, hell-bent on bringing it to its knees and destruction, to being one of the gospel's most ardent witnesses and apostles. Friends, this transformation can only be explained by the mercy and power of God in his electing grace for his glory. God does not choose an ethnic people or peoples as his own. Because inevitably, tragically, they will not bow the knee to Jesus in their entirety. We read, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, verse 8. We read in Galatians chapter 4 even more about who are the true children of Abraham. And it's those of faith we're told about, right? It's not those of natural descent. It's those who've been adopted into God's family by grace. What was the difference between Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau? What was the difference between them? Jacob was so much better than Esau? No, he wasn't, was he? They were both terrors. They were both shocking. There was no difference according to face value. In fact, humanly speaking, perhaps Esau was the most commendable and honoring towards his parents. Both of them were sinful men. But God called Jacob. God called Jacob and so because God called Jacob Jacob wrestled with God and Jacob received the gift of saving faith a faith that ultimately transformed his life and glorified God Esau was a man of the world capable and hardworking yet he was doomed to failure because of God's mercy not being ordained for him. Esau lived, breathed, rebelled and earned God's righteous wrath. Jacob, who similarly rebelled, was spared by grace in order that God's mercy be revealed and God glorified all the more. If God is faithful then in honouring his promises and he is what of our faithfulness what of our faithfulness in response to the free gift of faith we can read about Jacob's faithfulness as God made him faithful what about us since God is sovereign in salvation our role if our spiritual ears and eyes have been opened is surely to graciously accept God's sovereignty with thanksgiving and to be fervent and zealous gospel workers in order to save those we are broken-hearted for so who are they who are those you are broken-hearted for like paul surely your own children But who else? Paul is particularly motivated to reach his fellow Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh, verse 3. Those for whom he has a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, verse 2. And so this is why Paul goes to the synagogue, or to the Jewish meeting place, a place of prayer, as we read in Uh, Philippians uh, sorry in Philippi Acts chapter 16 verse 13 always one of Paul's top priorities when he reaches a new town is to find a synagogue or to find a place of prayer Jewish place of prayer why? because he wants to reach his people with the gospel of grace he wants to save them he is fervent about that it's top of his list And so when Paul found the place of prayer outside the gates of of Philippi, this new Roman colony that we read about, this place of opportunity where you can make your riches and make your name known, a new place in the empire, Paul goes to try and save some from the flames of judgment. And he finds outside the gates of Philippi a place of prayer and we're told the spirit of God was with them and a wealthy tradeswoman by the name of Lydia she was there and as Paul spoke of the saving power of the good news of Jesus Christ we're told the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul verse 14 of Acts 16 And Lydia was baptised. Paul's priority. To see his own people come to faith in Christ. So what are our priorities, friends? If we spare no time to speak to our children, to our friends and family, our co-workers and neighbours, how will they be saved? Will they just be saved by osmosis? because they've got a Christian co-worker sitting across from them just by osmosis they'll someday, somehow come to faith we need to speak to them friends we need to be fervently about the gospel ministry how will they come to know the grave danger of chasing after the world's fading delights the truth is friends that there are no good people No one's going to be saved through their own acts of kindness. Instead, we must put our hope in Jesus. The one whom we have come to know is God over all. Verse 5. The one who has sent his very own spirit into our hearts. The one by whom, as Paul says in Galatians 4, we can... Now call God our Abba Father through the power of the Spirit. Only in Jesus can we do that. Only in Jesus can our children one day do that. Can our family members and our friends one day do that. We have ample other opportunities to come and learn about the saving grace of the Lord our God. Here alone, in this chapel, we have a Sunday evening service. We have a midweek Bible study, 7.30 on Wednesdays. We have opportunities for service and for gospel outreach. The question is, will we take them? That all depends on how much Jesus truly means to us, let's bow our heads in prayer.